Right, let me invite you to find Luke chapter 10 in your Bibles. We're going to be back there again. We're going to be uh, looking at the rest of those verses in that section, sort of subsection, I guess, uh, that we began looking at last week, verses 17 through 20. We're going to be looking at the latter two of those primarily. Remember, it's a broader subsection, I think, that began back in verse 1 with the sending of the 70. Um, and I'm going to echo to you the same sort of introductory sentiments that I said last time, last week. And that's simply that these are enigmatic words yet again. It's, um, um, they're deep and mysterious in ways, not easy to understand, but um, I, I think that it, it's just like last week, it draws on a lot of uh, familiar language in Scripture, some biblical motifs that show up throughout Scripture. And I think that, again, is going to be the key to our properly understanding what Jesus means by what he says here. And for sake of time, well, that's ominous, right? We're going to jump on in and uh, we're, we're going to begin reading back only in verse 17. So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This is the holy and inspired word of God. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, please give your blessing to the reading of your word. We thank you for it. Please instruct us from it and reveal it to our minds and hearts. Please give us power and ability to overcome the effects of the fall on our mind and our desires and help us to see truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we'd spent all of our time on those first two verses in that, verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, I won't review much, but just scan over it with me as I speak here. Um, we see the 70 returning to give Jesus a report on the success of their work, right? To, it seemed like that came as a great surprise to them from, from the context, particularly given, I think, the context of verse 3 where Jesus had told them that he was sending them out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You don't expect to be victorious in that situation, right? But then in verse 17... Luke told us they returned, not forlorn, not in despair, but with joy, right? They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us, are subjugated under us, was the context, if you'll remember, in your name. Then, in verse 18, we saw Jesus um, 
explaining to them that as they went about harvesting souls for Christ through the preaching of the kingdom, that Jesus was seeing in that, in that harvesting of souls, that decisive but ongoing defeat of Satan. Remember we looked at the, the I think it was the LSB translation, I already had it up there, sorry, where it translates the imperfect tense in the Greek there as I was watching. See, that connotes something not just that happened and concluded at a time in the past, but something that was ongoing. And remember, we looked also at Luke chapter 11, uh, where uh, this is one of the... One of those instances where Jesus had cast out a demon and the scribes and Pharisees said, you're only able to do this because you're in league with the demons. Right? You cast out demons by the power of the demons, by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Remember all of that. And then we focused a lot on Jesus' response to help us understand verse 18. Remember what he said. Firstly, he said, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, if, it, if, if that's the reason I'm able to do that, then you should take that as understanding that the kingdom of God, remember the military language, has come upon you, right? And then he said this, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, that's Satan here, his goods are safe. My premise was his goods were the souls of men that he had that he kept under his authority and power because of the blindness of their sin, right? But Jesus says, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, that's Jesus, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides the spoil. Right? And when what I said last week was that what was happening with the 70, with the sending of the 70, was that that strong man was already beginning to be restrained. Yes. That he, what we saw in that that he was already beginning to be prevented from deceiving the nations any longer. That, that already in the work of those that Jesus sent out to claim that harvest, claim that harvest of souls, the strong man was already beginning to be plundered of his possessions. Amen. Right? And, and, and Christ was already beginning to claim that messianic inheritance of the nations that we read in Psalm 2 promised to him. Now that was my premise to you at least in verse 18. And as we move into verse 19, we need to be aware of something that, that Jesus is continuing the explanation of what they said in verse 17. Okay, It's really important that we don't lose that contextual connection um, because we're beginning it in another week. So bear that in mind and let's look at the way it begins. You can see that in the language actually. It says, behold. It's, it's a command, but it's a sort of a connective interjection here. right? He's, he's elaborating that out further. He says, first of all, I've given you authority. Okay, So see what he's doing here. He's, he's, he's answering the question that, that, that they haven't, really ask, but that's behind the statement. At least we don't know if they asked it or not. Luke has not recorded that. What's the question? Why is this happening? Right? How is this happening? And Jesus answers very simple. It's that I, he, the one who possesses authority over demons, already 
At that time, even prior to the cross, and we talked about that a lot last week. That's on Sermon Audio if you'd like to find out more about that. But the one who already possessed that authority, he's bestowed it upon them. And that's the reason why. That's the means how that they're able to do this. Now, let's read on in our verse um, and, and think about this. How does Jesus describe this authority that he's given them? We Remember, verse 17 began with them saying um, in, in surprise and joy, the demons are subject to us. In other words, they, they flee before us, they do what we command, etc. Well, look at the way he describes that subjugation here in verse 19. He says, Behold, I've given you authority to do what? To tread on, sorry, serpents and scorpions. Yeah. Right? Those things that in the Middle East can mean physical death to you, right? If you step on one of those accidentally. Now, I think this is implying a lot more than just being able to physically withstand snake bites and scorpion stings. Okay? Now, are there examples of that? Sure. Paul, right? He, uh, uh, when he was shipwrecked, a viper came out of the fire and, and uh, struck his hand and he shook it off and lived and they expected him to die. Remember? But I think this goes a lot um, more deeply than that or goes a lot deeper than that. I say that for a number of reasons. The first is the, the word that Luke uses here um, behind that phrase, tread on. It, it's a lot deeper of a connotation than simply to walk on something. Um, it's a word that's only used, uh, I think, five times in the New Testament, if I remember correctly. Um, it can mean the context of walking on, but it's never translated that way in the New Testament. Okay, It has a broader semantic range, like so many do, um, and usually it's translated with the connotation of something like trampling or crushing, right? C conquering, subjugating, etc. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a couple of examples. I'm trying to move fast here, but this is going to help us. Luke 21 remember this language in the Olivet Discourse that those unbelieving Jews, Luke told, or Jesus told them this, or told his disciples this of them, excuse me, they will fall by the edge of the sword, that's conquest, they'll be led captive, that's among all nations, that's subjugation, and here's our word, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. See that? That's much more than just simply walking. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then this, from Revelation 14, another place it's used. Revelation 14, 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, two things here. What happens to grapes in a wine press? They're crushed, right? I mean, they're crushed. They try to get every drop of juice out of them, right? Second question Why is God angry at grapes? <laughs> Kidding. Hermeneutical lesson, right? <laughs> this is people, this is his enemies, right? The grapes represent them. Look, here's our word, verse 20, the next verse. 
And the wine press was, there's our word, trodden outside the city. Remember then they didn't do it mechanically with screws. They did it by stepping on them. Right? Had many people get in the vat and crush those grapes, right? Drain that juice out of them. The wine press was trodden outside the city, look, and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for sixteen hundred stadia, right? See See the ultimacy in that, right? The, 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 the force in that crushing. Now, there's only two other places that, that uh, we haven't read now, and I'm going to skip them because they're almost identical to the ones we've read. So then, what then does that connotation mean for the way the word is used in our verse? Well, think about this. I'll give you another question. When, when we first read that, what's the first thing that came to your mind? That's right, Genesis 3.15. Right? I knew probably most of you would go there. Um, this is very familiar and important biblical language. Brandon said the crushing of the head of the serpent. And indeed, Genesis 3.15, remember after the fall, after, after Satan and the woman had conspired in a sense to bring down the man who had, had covenant headship, all that's important, God's judgment, one of the judgments he said against the serpent was, I'm going to take you to bedfellows here and I'm going to make you enemies, right? <laughs> You've conspired together here to, to rebel against me and I'm going to now put enmity, hostility between you two. Okay, don't read into my descriptions of that. Bear with me. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between not only that, see how it's perpetuating, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, So the one is going to cause affliction to the other, but the other's wounds are going to be fatal. Okay, They're going to result in the crushing of the head. And what we see throughout the scripture is that this is what happens. Ongoing throughout, right? We see it with Cain and Abel, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. That hostility just continues on throughout all those narratives. And, and, and the, the, the offspring of Satan, those who follow after him, those who think like him and do his bidding, are constantly seeking to strike the heel of the seed of the woman, right? Of the godly offspring. It's ongoing. Now, of course, this is ultimately fulfilled in the cross of Christ, right? Amen. Think about it. The, 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 the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of God, those that rebelled against His authority, delivered Jesus up to be crucified thinking that that would crush His head. <laughs> thinking that that would bring them victory by putting this Messiah, this incarnate Messiah to death. And you see, the irony was what? That very thing, that bruising of the heel, that very affliction is the thing that caused their head to be crushed. Amen. See, that was the messianic victory that crushed the head of the serpent. Okay, it's very important. But... Again, as I said, we see that motif occurring frequently throughout Scripture. I want to look at a couple just so, just so you understand that um, 
I'm not taking undue liberties there in using this language to apply it more broadly than simply the cross of Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of it. Okay? There's a, there's a very literal application to it given, to, uh, given in this warning to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember how it began, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Remember, it's when you go into the land and He's blessed you and He's given you all these promises uh, and He's poured out His grace upon you. Be careful lest you forget the Lord your God. Look, who, skipping verses, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness? What was in that great and terrifying wilderness? <laughs> That's right. Scorpions and snakes and famines and pestilences and diseases. And they said, God's the one who's brought you through that. It's by His power that you've overcome those things that are at enmity with you, that seek to destroy you. You need to be careful that you don't, rem- don't, that you don't forget who it is that's brought you here with its, through this uh, wilderness with its fiery serpents and its scorpions and its uh, thirsty ground where there was no water. Right? Beware, here's the danger for us all, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. This is so important for where we're going to end up today. Okay, So pay attention to that. Now that's sort of a negative example, I guess. Um, but there's, a, there's an important reminder in it that we can expect to suffer. Right? Like We can expect to to have our heels bruised in this life. And I'm going to say that over and over again. But we need to understand that God is with us through it. And He'll bring us through it. And and in the end, it will be for our greater good that we suffered. And and we'll ultimately be victorious. I'm going to state that out front and I'll unpack that later. Think about... Well, I won't even go there. Um... Look at this from, from Psalm 91. Same motif. It's, it's applied more broadly as a positive encouragement uh, to God's people. Uh, we're familiar with it. He who dwells in the shelter, the safety of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the one who's the, 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 the Almighty, right? who has all strength. I will say to the Lord... My refuge, my fortress, those places where you go when, you, when you're fleeing danger, right? when you go for protection and safety, my God in whom I trust. Okay? Not, not horses, not chariots, not castles, but the Lord. Skipping down, verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. So here's a response. Pay attention to this next verse. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be important for later. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Just remember that for later. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Does that sound familiar? Right, that's what uh, Satan tempted Jesus with. One of the things he tempted Jesus with in the wilderness temptation that we talked about last week where Jesus defeated Satan and cast him out, said, be gone, Satan, right? He tempted him with that. He says, okay, if you really trust the Lord, like the Messiah said to do here in Psalm 91, it's messianic ultimately, he says, then prove it. Jump off the 
pinnacle of the temple. I can't remember which one it was. I think that was it. Yeah, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and let's see if God's word holds true. And Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? He responds more faithfully than Satan could even anticipate. Now, reading on here, here's the language I was trying to get to. Um, You will tread on the lion and the adder, like a snake, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Do you see that motif? If what? If you trust in the Lord, right? If your rest is in Him, if He's your fortress and He's your refuge, you're going to overcome those things that sneak up on you secretly and, and devour your life. Because, see it's messianic, because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him I will protect him because he knows my name. Now, I've said it many times now, but I, I think ultimately this is messianic. But, but understand even in that, that it's the Messiah's faithfulness in the incarnation as a man that earns these blessings and protections that he then imputes and gives to those who are united to him in faith. Right? Because he didn't falter. Because he held fast to the Father in love. See, because of all that, the God of this world, little g, that we read about last week, has no power over him in the incarnation. Right? That's why he can say, be gone. Now, what does this mean then, this motif mean, back in verse 19, when we see this language employed there? Well, I'm going to make two assertions. The one is, It means that the 70 would still probably expect to have their heels bruised. But they would have certain victory as well. Two things, okay? Look at what we haven't read yet, and I'll try to flesh that out more. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and look at the expansion of of this. And over... All the power of the enemy. Sproul says this about that. He says, Now, that one who will crush the head of the serpent fully and finally grants his disciples the power to tread on the serpent and on the scorpion and over all the power of the enemy. And he says, I think rightly, that is the power of the kingdom of God. And he says this, it's even better. He says, here's what that means. There is no possible way that the enemies of the Christian faith can ever prevail over the kingdom of God. See, and that's what we talked about at length last week, right? That victory that was certain. Um, Now, watch this. This is where it gets a little confusing. Look at the very last thing he says in verse 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Brethren, it's so important that we understand this correctly. Is Jesus telling the 70 here, well, now you won't face any persecution? No, No, he's not. That'd be a pretty difficult circle to square, as they say. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, verse 3, he said, I'm seeing you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, right? That indicates that 
It's not going to be hunky-dory for you. And remember what that meant in Matthew chapter 10. He said the same thing to the twelve. He said, when he told them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, he elaborated upon it there what that meant. He said, beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. See that? We know what that language meant. What's my point? Their heels are still going to be bruised. See? But they're going to ultimately crush the head. They're going to ultimately tread on those who, who, who strike their heel, who bruise their heel. And the language here, my premise, and I'll try to prove it, is that what, when he says, and nothing will harm you, he's talking about ultimately and eternally. He's not talking about temporally and physically. Let me show you a few things. Back in Luke 21, remember what Jesus said here on, again on the Olivet Discourse. He, he, he told his disciples, they will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to synagogues and prisons. This is after that event even. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. But look to what end. And this is, brings it all together, I think. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. See that? This, this, this where they seek to afflict you and scatter you and, br and bring you to prosecution, this is going to give you a platform for the gospel. And what's going to happen when, the plat when you're given, through persecution, you're given a platform for the gospel. This is Mark's account. He inserts this here. Luke doesn't. But what? <laughs> the gospel's going to go out to all the nations. See that? Because they're striking your heel. They're going to, they're going to cause their own defeat. See that? Now, look, look, let me get caught up here. Look at, look at this. Back in Luke 21, verse 16. Okay? You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And watch. Some of you will be put to death. Some of you will be put to death. Okay? You will be hated for all by, by all for my name's sake. Okay? Now watch. It parallels our text masterfully. You'd think it was the same guy. I'm joking. It is. <laughs> you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Some of you will be put to death. Next verse. But not a hair of your head will perish. Think about that. Yes, that's the point. He even says, look, and this explains so much, by your endurance, you're going to gain your lives. Right? Through enduring that suffering that's coming, the temporal and physical suffering that is promised to you, through the endurance of that, coming on the other side of that, you're going to gain this eternal protection that I've promised. Look at, look at what he's, the same Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. And we see in that first sentence that it's applicable to us all. Whoever has spiritual ears to hear. He says, look, the one who conquers 
will not be hurt by the second death. He didn't say he wouldn't be hurt by the first death. Right? The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let me, let me show you what I think that means. We're back in Revelation 20 again. Picking up where we left off last week. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. What happens when you're beheaded? You die. Right? Okay. Not a trick. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony, the witness, the martyrdom of Jesus, and for the word of God. He says, I saw those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So these are Christians who have died. Okay? They, they, they've not, they've, the, the beast didn't own them. Right? He, didn't, he didn't control how they thought, what they desired. He didn't control what they did. Okay? They were owned by the Lamb. We'll see that in a minute. But they had loved not their lives even unto death. You see that? They had suffered. They had ultimately been martyred for their faithfulness to Christ. And he says, they came to life. That's the first resurrection. We'll see that in a minute. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, I'm not going to go into that again this week. It, too much badgering last week as a result. No, we don't have time. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. Like if, I really didn't mind all that. I'm joking. Um, but look at this, okay? Either way, what it, whether you think that's now or, or in the future, my point is not affected here. Watch this. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Watch verse 6. This is the, these are the adjectives you won't attach to you, okay? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Guys, who shares in that first resurrection that we saw? What was described of them? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, those who've been faithful unto death, right, are given life, okay? Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, look, the second death, that's the point. The second death has no power. They succumbed to the first death. Amen? They suffered for the sake of Christ. The second death has no power over them. And they will be priests of God and of Christ. That's... Think of the old covenant context. That's as close as you can get to God. You're the mediator there, right? They will be priests of God in Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. What's, what's the point I'm trying to drive home here? It's that there's, there's something more important than temporal and physical success. There's something more important than temporal and physical happiness. Than temporal and physical victories. There's something more important than even our temporal and physical lives, right? And we see that in our text. What matters the most, we see it here in Revelation 20, and the thing that Christ promises and Christ ensures for His people is eternal protection and eternal life, right? Look at verse 20. I think we see that point being driven home even, even further there. Here's why... No ultimate harm can come to, to the people of God. Verse 20. Now remember, notice nevertheless, okay? So remember, verse 17, they came back and they're excited. Even the demons are 
subject to us in your name. She said, I was seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you power. Nothing can harm you. Right? Just lofty, grand spiritual truths, right? A victory and conquest. And then he says, in contrast here, but nevertheless, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen. See, Amen. in other words, it, it, it's, it's great that you've had this experience. Okay? It's great, really. It's great that you've experienced these, this victory over the powers of darkness. Right? But that shouldn't be your ultimate cause of rejoicing. What, what ought to bring you ultimate joy is the fact that, that God has chosen you for citizenship in heaven. Amen. That God has chosen you and through Christ, through the Lamb we'll see later, has enrolled you in His heavenly kingdom. His eternal kingdom that suffers no defeat ever. Let me show you a contrast here. and Let me begin with a question first. Is it possible... Okay, think, hear me out, okay? Is it possible for someone to experience supernatural phenomena, to experience and even do signs and wonders, to experience great earthly victories over spiritual forces, and yet their names not be recorded in heaven? I'm glad you answered that so affirmatively. It'll make it easier here. Matthew 7.22, what does Jesus say in that most frightening of all verses? On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at the emphasis in their words, right? The repetition. Did we not prophesy in your name? Supernatural. Do we not cast out demons in your name? Supernatural. Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Very supernatural. You know how it goes. Jesus says, then I will declare to them, not I knew you when you were doing those things, but you've fallen away. It's not what he says. He says, I've never known you. And why have I never known you? Not because you can't do miraculous things. They are. But because you're a worker of lawlessness. Yeah, because you're a worker of iniquity. See that your relationship with sin is such that proves that I don't know you and you don't know me. Guys, not everything miraculous is of God. Think of Pharaoh's servants in the Exodus. Okay, there are lying signs and wonders. Jesus, or not, well, Jesus, yeah, but, but God through Moses warned the Israelites prophets might come and, and predict the future and it might come to pass. But if they tell you to go after other gods, you stone them. Right? Like, there are lying signs and wonders, but see, workers of lawlessness. Those that, that, that go against the Word of God, the standard of ethics and morality within it, they don't belong to God's kingdom regardless of what they say and regardless of what they do. You know, meaning what signs or whatever that they're able to perform. Now, contrast this with, again, Revelation 20 
and the citizens of heaven that we see there. Then I saw a great white throne. What's happening there? Judgment. Okay? And him who was seated on it. Who is that? Jesus. Right? Now, watch how pervasive, all-encompassing this judgment is. And I saw the dead, great and small, the powerful, the poor, standing before the throne. What's that? means they're submitting to this judgment. <laughs> they don't have a choice. And the books were opened. Deeds, okay? The, the record of our lives, the record of our deeds. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, okay? Come back to that. But those in that book have life, ultimately, at the judgment. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is a righteous judgment. Okay, this is pure, a white throne, white hot holiness and righteousness. And, and the judgment is going to be impeccable, perfectly righteous. Now watch the extent of the judge's authority. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Even nobody's lost. Okay. Even death and Hades, right? The very depths of the depths gave up those who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Guess what that is? That's the second death that we read about before. The lake of fire. And look, look at the criteria. Look at the only one thing that caused people to not be thrown into the lake of fire because of their deeds. Let me say, do we all deserve to be thrown in the lake of fire? Amen. Okay, we all deserve that. Okay, so if there's this impeccably righteous judgment, how are people not thrown into the lake of fire? (laughs) Mark steals my thunder. That's right. (laughs) Because... Of the Lamb. It'll say it in a minute. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. And we're going to come to that in just a minute. But look at the very next verse. Okay? You'll see my point. Remember, chapter breaks are added later. Then, John sees another vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And look what John sees. So remember, there's this big mass of people, right? And those who were judged according to their own merits and worth were righteously cast into the lake of fire. Here's what's left. Those whose names were written in the book of life. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Look, coming down out of Heaven from God. Where are the saints enrolled? In Hebrews 12, 13. Right? In heaven, right? Okay. There's citizenship here. I saw this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Look at this language. Prepared as a bride for her husband. Think about that. We, we, see, we see this city... That God has prepared as a bride for His Son coming down out from God and look at the way it's identified. 
Think Ephesians. One of the angels told John, Come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who is that? That's those whose names are written in the book of life. We'll see that clearly in a minute. Okay? That's the bride of Christ. Okay? That's the church of Jesus Christ. Prepared in heaven, coming down to meet the Son. Look at this. Skipping a lot of verses, but watch what's said of the city. I, I, I leave this one to, to connect it to last week. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. See that? The fealty, the loyalty, the worship, the servitude of the nations, the plunder of the nations, plural, are going to be brought into this city. You see that? That's that messianic inheritance of the nations coming in and and, and being a part of this city of God. But now watch, and we'll get back to Matthew. (laughs) Sorry, it's kind of a segue, but it was necessary. But nothing unclean, you're paying attention, will ever enter it. This is a holy city. This is the new Jerusalem. It won't be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Not this heavenly Jerusalem. You see that? Nothing unholy, unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who are workers of lawlessness, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written. Now we see authorship in the Lamb's book of life. Let me go back to the question. If He's going to judge the world in righteousness, and all are unrighteous, how can this one group be kept out of the lake of fire? Tell us again, Mark. That's right. See? Because the Lamb spilled His blood in their place. See that? Because the judgment that that they deserve, that we all deserve for our sin, the Lamb volunteered to take that upon Himself. And because He had no sin of His own, and because He had lived a life on the earth as a man, under temptation, but in perfect obedience to God, see, He could do that, sorry, and it would be righteous. See that? God doesn't just set aside and get soft His standards. To save, what does He do? See, He punishes His Son in their stead. Who voluntarily takes that curse upon Himself. It's so important we understand that. But, does that work of Christ in you leave you unaffected? Nothing unclean will ever enter it. nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Guys, is it that we're clean so we're accepted into the citizenship of heaven? No! It's because Christ is clean. And because Christ stood in our, in our place. But see, He who begins a good work in you will bring it to completion. He doesn't leave you unaffected. He sanctifies those who are His doesn't happen all at once. It's progressive. Okay? 
but he changes you. I got to laugh now. That's good. Long story. Now, that's what I'm contrasting with Matthew 7 here. Now, watch this. This, connect, this connects it back to verse 20 in our text. This is why we have a greater cause of rejoicing. Because look at what's said now of that city. No longer, same thing we just read, will there be anything accursed. But look, the throne of God, the throne of the Lamb will be in it. See that? And His servants will worship Him. Now watch this anthropomorphism here. They will see His face. What does He mean by that? means there's nothing between them now. There's, there's no need for, for mediation and, and mitigation. It's full frontal, full personal relationship and communion with God. They will see His face. Here's the mark of the Lamb. Nobody talks about that, right? His name will be on their foreheads. What does that mean? It means He owns them. It means He owns us. We think the way He thinks. We desire what He desires. Etc. And night will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp of sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And look at the language we've seen before. They will reign, not for a really, really, really long time, but forever and ever with Christ. Right? Those who love not their lives even unto death. Now, I think we have time for this last little portion. It's just a few verses. Bear with me. I think it would be a great encouragement to us and an exhortation as well. We looked also at the beginning of this last week. It's crazy, in a good way, how our text parallels these themes in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20 to me. This is why I'm trying to connect the dots. So we looked at verse 7 and 8 last week. We'll read verse 9 just so you can be reminded. My premise to you was that verse 9 here is talking about the cross, not the prehistoric fall. Okay, The great dragon was thrown down. The, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Right? So he's, he, he's, he's cast down. His, his work of accusation... Remember Job and, and, and the priest Joshua that we looked at in Zechariah where Satan's coming up to heaven. He's saying, they're sinners. They're sinners. You, have to, you can't bless them. You, can't, you have to condemn them. See that work of adversarial accusation. Okay? The cross put an end to that for the people of God. We read that in Romans 8 as we concluded last week. Right? There's therefore now no condemnation. If God's for you, who can be against you? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Now that Christ has taken that guilt upon Himself, suffered its punishment, and released them from it. You see that? Who can withstand God's elect? You can't do it. That's right. Okay. So who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world? He was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with Him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, watch, the salvation. Now, the power. Now, in that, the kingdom of our God. Now, in that, the authority of the Christ have come. Watch the marker. Watch the result. For 
the accuser of our brothers. That was his power. Right? was over us, over men. His power to blind the nations. His power to keep them from coming to the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ was through their sin. And what is Christ putting into for those for whom He died? Their sin. See that? The power, the kingdom, the salvation, the authority of the Christ have come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. One could add like lightning from heaven. <laughs> the one who accuses them before day and night. Now watch this. That wasn't even my point. Here's my point. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> they have conquered him. The saints have conquered Satan. How? Thank you. <laughs> Not by politicians. Armies. By the blood of the Lamb. See, through their faith in the Lamb. Through what the Lamb has done for them by way of substitution and atonement, they have conquered Him by the word of the testimony of the Lamb. And look, how else have they conquered? By loving not their temporal and physical lives even unto death. Meaning they were faithful to Christ regardless of the cost. And it cost them everything. And he says, in that bruising of their heels... They've crushed the head of the serpent. You see that? Now watch this. That was the point, but this is too good to pass up. Verse 12. Almost done, really. Therefore, so in light of all those truths, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, who dwells in the heavens, Yes, those who are enrolled in heaven. right? Those who love not their lives even unto death. Those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay? Their citizenship is in heaven. They can't be touched. They cannot be touched. No harm comes to them. Rejoice. See, those who, are, who have already realized that first resurrection. Okay? Life after death with Christ. But watch. This puts a sobering perspective, perspective on it for us. But woe to you. Warning. Danger to you, O earth and sea. Those who dwell on the earth and sea. That's us now. Okay? For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. That tells us two things. One is daunting, one is glorious. The first is it reminds us that he's cast down. He doesn't have the ear of God to make accusation against us. There is nothing ultimately that he can do. All he can do is like Job afflict your body. He cannot touch your soul. Right? He cannot. If you're in Christ, and only if you're in Christ through repentance and faith, he cannot ultimately harm you not ultimately but he peter says he still prowls around on the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour okay his he's tenacious and ferocious in doing what damage he can but see ultimately it's going to be futile isn't it here's my point 
Okay? <laughs> we can expect to have bruised heels as we, as we serve our king in this foreign land. Okay? Here's the thing. The swelling will go down. Right? I was hoping Andrew would be here. He uh, got bit by a copperhead last week. <laughs> but guys, or not last week, last year, sorry. But that swelling, that pain, it's, it'll go away. You're going to suffer hurt now. I almost promise you that. Based on the Word of God, not because I'm a prophet. But you will, if you serve Christ faithfully in, in this present age, you will suffer affliction. But, but that affliction will heal. Right? It, it won't last forever. And we have ultimate victory promised to, to those who endure to the end. To those who conquer. Again, by what means? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. An ultimate victory promised to those who conquer because they love not their lives even unto death. Now, brethren, I say this all the time, and I don't want to say it so much that you stop thinking about it when I ask it. Do we need the grace of God to thus conquer? Remember the warning to Israel. Beware, lest you think my might and my strength have delivered me from all these afflictions in the wilderness. That's the same is true for us. Okay, We need to remember... We need, to, we, we, we need to take these admonitions seriously. Okay, we need to set our face to Jesus with flint-like resolve, but not in dependence on our own strength. You understand that? But by and through looking to Him to empower us, where we're going to fail with, apart from His Spirit. All right, let's pray together. Our Lord and King, we praise You. We worship You. We praise You for the privilege of being Your people. We praise You for the privilege of being called out of darkness and into light. Give us strength that we might be faithful to You. Give us strength to withstand the bruising of our heels. Give us courage. Give us resolve. Please. That we might serve You faithfully. That we might be faithful unto death and receive a crown of life. We ask in Your name. Amen.